From the beginning of time, as 2001 reminded us, the creatures of Earth have aspired to the stars. The modern era of special effects begins here, with Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey. The year was 1968. The film challenged and inspired a new generation of special effects artists. He would tell me the last couple years of his life when we were talking about the form. He kept saying, I want to change the form. I want to make a movie that changes the form. And I said, well, didn't you do that with 2001? To see somebody actually do it, to make a visual film, was hugely inspirational to me. If he did it, I can do it. Welcome to Voice Print Identification. <laughs> 2001. A Space Policy. I'm Wes. And I'm Brad. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. We're going to the convention. Oh, man, we can't wait. We're actually leaving this place for a little while, getting some fresh air. Let this, well, also give the corridors a chance to air out here. Yeah. We're going to open up all the airlocks. Yeah. Lock down all the... Um, you know, loose items that might become floatsome and jetsome. I was going to put his shades on, get down to absolute zero, and kind of rock it out, batch it for a while. Yeah. And uh, meanwhile, we're coming back down to Earth. Um, Wes can visit his wife. I can visit my girlfriend. And then we're going to go to Nashville, Tennessee, for the ICCC, which is the Imperial Collector's Commissary Convention. Boy, that's a mouthful. The con is on. For us and, like, thousands of people. <laughs> yeah, this um, is something that we visited in the past, and apparently the uh, the demand for this has grown to a point where they've had to choose a new convention center <laughs> that was, what, like five times the size of the yeah. original one? And the field next to it. Yeah. And so. the campsites next next to that and like the fiddlers pl playground cabin or whatever it is michael havens i mean entrepreneur of the universe for the last two years he got an award for uh what was it uh, promoter of the year last year from the yeah <laughs> i mean he's, he's doing huge work for that i mean it all came out of a facebook group for yep. collectors of star wars Vintage toys and last time we saw ian mcdermott we had anthony daniels we played a clip of anthony daniels that we got to see this year there's going to be massive amount of stuff more stars there's going to be a rebels reunion all the original cast of rebels and the Technical panels are so much fun in these. Uh, they, we've had you know people oh. talking about everything down to toy design. Oh, and the design like, of those figure panels are great. Very enlightening and things that you wouldn't really get to know about unless you got it from the horse's mouth. And these creators and like entertainers mm -hmm. from different. Last year, I'm trying to think. So we saw right the, the the toy designers, the man from Kenner, yes, did the original designs, and then we saw the guy who was in charge with Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. That was maybe my favorite 
hidden gem yeah. of the weekend. Same here. I'm learning about how the logo was actually created by that guy. That guy in Getter. Ten feet in front of him. Uh, ended up pitching it to Spielberg, and uh, he loved it. So that that very iconic profile of the T-Rex and the circle, that is um, that was not Spielberg's idea, nor was that any part of the original design of the film. That was from the toys. Incredible. These are the kind of stories that you get at conventions like this. You get Return of the Jedi reunion this year with Stephen Constantino, who's a Gamorrean guard and friend of Billy Dee Williams' son. We got to hear about <laughs> them jamming out in Billy Dee's uh, garage. Yeah, that was very neat. <laughs> and and uh, what uh, Mike Quinn is not going to be there this year, but he was great, and he's 9-none, but he was at actual celebration this year in Europe operating a bunch of creatures yeah, from Neil Scanlon. Yeah, was fantastic. And he's like operating stuff on The Mandalorian so he's probably busy right now filming The Acolyte. And then meanwhile we got uh, Femi Taylor, Ula, the original Twi'lek from Jabba's Palace. She's going to be there. I can't wait for that. That's incredible. So there's going to be a, a panel on that It's and of course everybody's available for pictures and autographs. We're, we're not paid. I swear we're not paid. Just excited. Just excited. Big fans and we can't wait to go back. It's going to be basically Star Wars Woodstock this year because it's the only big it's the only Star Wars convention yeah. stateside. Yes, yeah, stateside period. So we're and we're going to be there. Uh, come find us. Yeah, come and find us. We'll be there. We'll be rocking our uh, letter tag. We'll Wes be... and Brad, just come and find uh, anyone that looks like they are rocking some extra 2001 merchandise because we're going to be <laughs> trying to uh, represent a little bit. Since yeah. it'll we'll be have fun. something for you. It, go to ICC convention.com if you want to get tickets it's, uh, i can't remember what it is a day but for the weekend it's a hundred bucks yeah now that i mean that's if you ever steal. go to conventions that's an amazing deal for what you're getting for this and i believe the individual tickets were um, like 65 dollars so, okay yeah. yeah so if you just want to go way. for one day it's still it's a very affordable way to go convention wise and when you get inside you can deal with honest dealers you get people who are reputable and accountable inside there so you know you can Trust that there's not going to be insanely inflated prices for things. No, no, everything was very reasonably priced. I even uh, picked up a novel from the author himself, Mr. Timothy Zahn, and had him sign it. I basically got it for the same price you get it at Barnes and Noble. So (laughs) great, chatted with him and his wife. Yeah, yeah, they were a very, uh, very sweet couple. So that was that was fantastic to uh, get to meet one of my favorite writers. We photobombed Ian McDermott a couple of times. Yeah, he he could see us. He was used to that. (laughs) The emperor eye. Uh, You could see that yellow glistening grill eye from the back. (laughs) So we we can't wait, and we're. In anticipation of this, leading up to look at 2001 and the intersection with Star Wars. We've got a lot of thematic elements that are really going to dovetail nicely. You know, obviously both breakthrough sci-fi hits, using a lot of innovative technology that hadn't really been tried and tested before. Two incredibly talented staff rosters that we're going to be able to look at influences. We're going to be able to check out different comparisons from technical details to philosophic choices for the narratives. Uh, Just going to take a step back and and see what they have in common, what they don't. We've reached a point narratively in 2001 where we can take a breather now that... uh... All but one of our characters have drawn their last breath. 
uh, <laughs> we're going to take a breath and uh, look at one of our other favorite things in the world, uh, which is Star Wars. Yeah, I believe in uh, even some of her uh, one of her earlier episodes when we talked about films that may have got us to 2001, and you know, I especially remember Star Wars mm-hmm. being you know one of the foremost not only sci-fi film but just cinematic experience for me when I was a kid. So growing up with that and then getting into heavier uh, you know material like the abyss uh, like terminator yeah. and you know eventually 2001 so really we're we're looking forwards and backwards backwards and forwards and backwards and down. forwards backwards and forwards backwards and forwards first we're going to talk about the influences that 2001 had on star wars and the makers when 2001 first came out i was in film school which obviously it had a huge impact on me. Any time a Stanley Kubrick film came out, me and most of my friends were always the first in line to go see it. You know, I remember very clearly the first day I saw 2001, it was opening day. The theater was really cold. And so when we were in space in the whole second half of the movie, I felt like I was on board the spaceship. I had everybody that I know now that, that has gone on to get awards and, and accolades were at that time just kids just starting out. And 2001 was the picture that just ignited the spark. I was blown away by it, just like everybody else. They weren't trying to convince me this was happening. They were showing me what it was like. You know that, you know, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, you know, were sitting in the theater a few years older than us, just going, oh, I get it. You know, it was, it was like being touched with a lightning rod. From Howard Kazanjian, A Producer's Life, by the great and powerful J.W. Rensler, who will always be with us. And we have on page 76. Now, if you've read, this is a great book, co-written by Kazanjian with with Rensler. And he, uh, Kazanjian went to USC um, and was in the same class as, as Lucas. Okay. So before he came on to Empire Strikes Back, and uh, we had the opportunity to go see Raiders of the Lost Ark in the theater oh, a few days ago. Cinematic experience. I've seen that film so many times, but it was like seeing it for the first time. I mean, <laughs> I still, that's Kazanjian's masterpiece calling card, if you ask me as a producer. At the time he met Coppola, Lucas was dating Marcia Griffin. Kazanjian was right there at the forefront when George was dating Marcia, soon to be... Marsha Lucas, who would win an Oscar for Star Wars and would uh, at least be nominated uh, for uh, works with Scorsese, Taxi Driver, and maybe New York, New York. George was very quiet, Marsha says, but Verna had seen some of his student films and thought that he was really talented and she was under a deadline to get the film. Okay, so one of the, the bonuses of this book is that Rensler also does an extensive interview with Marsha Lucas. Cool. Uh, on details that she hasn't been on the record about uh, before. She, she had a big influence on the script. And Absolutely. Some of the editing choices, mm-hmm. uh, especially, especially in, in post. Um, mm-hmm. You know, th- there were a lot of hard decisions that had to be made, and yeah. you know, she, she let some stuff hit to the cutting floor uh, Absolutely. To, to help this thing get along. She says on page 77 here, George was very quiet, Marcia says, but Verna had seen some of his student films and thought he was really talented, and she was under a deadline to get the film cut, so she asked George to cut some scenes for her. Now, Verna Fields went on to cut Jaws, by the way. Wow. 
he was probably the least experienced editor she had, and I was the best assistant she had. So she made me George's assistant while he cut. And I'm a motor mouth, of course. Later on, he told me he thought I was full of beans, which is just the kind of thing he would say, Ah, oh, you're full oh, of beans. beans. Yeah, that is. Oh, Marcia, you're full of beans. Oh. But I thought he was a cold fish. And so that's how I met George. Despite <laughs> their wariness. Oh, here we go. Yeah, this is the one. Despite their wariness, they were both interested in films and often went together to see screenings of student shorts. Lucas would drive them. On one trip, they discovered that they'd both been born in Modesto, which created a Modesto bond. But we were always oil and water, she says. We'd go to films, go to a French movie, black and white, and I'd be sitting there asking, where's the story? Where's the characters? We'd leave the theater and George would say, that was such a good film. And I would say, I was bored out of my skull. <laughs> One of the films they saw together was Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Wow. I remember George saying, now it's possible to make a movie in outer space and have it be real, she <gasps> says, because of the miniatures and the star fields and so on. Wow. And it is one of the most realistic star field scenes that we get. That's not something that you typically see. It's usually matte painting. Um, they're They're working with like very low resolution scale yeah. models. I mean, up to this point, sci-fi was pretty hokey, mm -hmm. you know, as far as realism, and you really had to uh, suspend disbelief to, to get yeah, you there. Uh, definitely. But this, uh, we've, we've beat this horse to death, but I mean, the ideas that Kubrick had as far as manifesting the physics of space before we even really knew how this was going to work in mm -hmm. the first place. Attention to the physics of his world. In other words, things that were massive moved in a way that was appropriate to physics. If you go to space, there's no gravity. But in all the space movies before then, people walked around in the ships. And they still do. Star Wars, people stand up in the ships and the ships do loop-de-loops and nobody's hanging onto a handle. You know, you'd, you'd fly against the ceiling, you'd hit the windshield. I think it was the first time people really took science fiction seriously. A lot of the, the science fiction up to that point, especially during the 50s, had been very B-oriented, which is a giant monster, a giant ant, a giant this. Science fiction and horror films were all kind of tongue-in-cheek. It was entertaining, it was uh, engaging, but it wasn't, didn't feel significant. All the cogs started turning at this point. So he's already made... Um, at this point, 68, he's two. made 4EB. He's made THX 1138 4EB, okay. I think, as his student. Last student film. Thesis. I was about to say, so THX, you know, obviously pretty, pretty sci-fi, mm -hmm. pretty futuristic. Uh, definitely see, like, the DNA of his tone poems yes. in that one. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why he liked 2001 so much, you know, if I could... Uh, bridge the gap there. It seems like something that is showing more than telling, and uh, really, it's uh, again, my gosh, we beat this theme to death too. But an, an Odyssey, a journey, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, this archetypal story because he was such a big fan of um, Joseph of Campbell, Joseph Campbell, and the the hero's journey and all these classical story archetypes and probably saw that 
with the technology that he might be able to use and with this kind of welcoming of a, a new era of sci-fi, he had what he needed to start his dream project. Stanley tried to take a basic literary work and do it visually without words. And I think he succeeded amazingly well. The first few reels of 2001 are, in a way, by definition, a silent movie. It's extremely subtle, and it's extremely visual. And, and the story is, you know, just sort of razor thin. If you were proven to be malfunctioning, I wouldn't see how we'd have any choice but disconnection. The way he told stories was sometimes antithetical to the way we are accustomed to receiving stories. I said, wow, somebody simply took their time to tell a story, and it's a very subtle story. And when you present a film like that, and you're a good filmmaker, you can really draw an audience in, because they have to pay attention. Those slow parts were absolutely essential to the, the whole feeling of just being in space. It starts getting really interesting and uncomfortable, and, and not in a classical way at all, in a very sub-soul way that only, I guess, he knew how to do. I think it's so far ahead of its time in terms of the way it tells a story and does it visually rather than verbally. It's a silent movie in the sound era, and I think we will get back there. In the end, it's just each film is a new challenge in trying to explore the idea of uh, telling a story cinematically and giving less and less exposition and uh, having the, the pace be such that you can have impressions of images thrown on top of each other without um, and, and get a whole new sense of a story or a, a feeling. George loved abstract films. He got into film through the animation and he was most fascinated in that and then let's say ballet mechanique and photographic animation and documentary and the verite styles that were coming along and all of these basically types of cinema that were not mainstream narrative cinema. Where does, uh, on that timeline, where does stop motion really come in to its full kind of realized potential or maybe not? Um, Probably, you know, you really, 33 is when it blossomed in its full height with King Kong for the first time, but I then gotcha. Ray Harryhausen in the 50s, that's yeah, probably the monster. I mean, the whole the... Monsters universe that came out of that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was just thinking the scene, now we're, we're jumping forward a little bit here, but in Empire, the Wampa um, especially just gave me the kind of old school monster, you know, monster of the week yeah. kind of. You know, he's attaching himself. THX 1134EB, the student film, is definitely 100% a tone poem. The feature, THX 1138 with Robert Duvall, has more of a narrative structure overall that's over 80 minutes, but it's definitely still a pretty abstract feature, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. The idea of the show don't tell that you were saying that visual impact is and the juxtaposition of images is definitely up his alley. And uh, thinking about then what you're saying with the stop motion, you know, why did we have the ending we have of 2001? Because they couldn't lick it. They could not master an artificial, I mean, not artificial, a, a final alien intelligence yeah. that looked worth a damn. No. With stop motion that they tried and with the 
inks and swirling water and it all that. It would have undercut the whole film on a design basis, because at that point we were seeing Our mind's high. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, totally built up, way beyond what they could deliver. Yeah. And so with a Tauntaun in Empire, uh, that's the most you're going to get away with. It's perfection for Phil Tippett, but they could never master the stop motion in mm. 2001. Yeah, we, we don't even... We get scale ship models, you know, that that's definitely used pretty frequently through all the um, exterior scenes, uh, through all the stations and through the, the discovery parts, but we don't have a lot of maquettes or puppets or, or anything like that. That is uh, mm-hmm. that is one thing that is unique, you yes. know, more than, more than unique mm-hmm. for that um, Star Wars universe where you are getting the combination of tech and creatures <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a cool juxtaposition so a lot of the time you'd see that more of a fantasy setting which you know, if you get down to it mm-hmm. we call it a, a sci-fi it's a sci-fi fantasy Definitely. so um th- those really works to its advantage as far as uh mm-hmm. creating something unique and accessible yeah. by a lot of people so Brian J. Jones may mention it in the fantastic George Lucas A Life. If you haven't read it, I strongly recommend it. It's a great biography, probably at least to date the definitive George Lucas biography. But there is a point where Star Wars becomes a hero's journey, right? Because before then, it's Flash Gordon. So George Lucas goes from... THX 1138 utter failure to the greatest hit that had ever happened in independent (laughs) cinema, American Graffiti. You know, it's like the greatest per like dollar uh, spent per dollar made back of all time. You know, I was kind of thinking it was like a a thematically American pop at the time Mm -hmm. film, but was it received? American Graffiti? As far as like, um, because when it came out, it was basically what, 20 years past when it occurred 62 12 12 years 12 years okay mm-hmm. okay uh, so i'm wondering if uh, like the if it was like a vintage nostalgic kind of thing for people uh-huh. and the americana and like the kind of pulp of that mm-hmm. um, you know that really worked that's something that a lot of people could have yeah. connected with and reminisce about but because it was a smash and Probably for people our age, it would be, you know, like uh, making a movie uh, in the, about the late 2000s, you know, yeah. so it would have that same sort of reminiscence of, wow, that wasn't long ago, but damn, I remember that kind of youth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah cool. It obviously clicked with audiences. It was a big moment for me because I really did sit down to myself and say, okay, now I am a director. Now I know I can be creative in a way that I enjoy. One day we've been standing around Mel's diner and I said to George, what do you think you want to do next? And he said, well, I like science fiction. The advances Kubrick made, I want to apply that to Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon kinds of movies, like a movie serial. Combine that with 2001 special effects, but the ships go real fast. (laughs) And that's kind of all he said. That was about all I had. I don't know. He's really good at making connections to people, Mm -hmm. despite the subject matter. And I think THX may have alienated people just because of the the lack of dialogue, the lack of exposition. And it is a downer. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a a super uh, (laughs) happy film, but 
the blend of the two, because we get, you know, Star Wars is uplifting and uh, challenging at the same time because you've got the the rising and falling of of uh, the balance, mm-hmm. the balance of the forest. So yeah, um, you're you're constantly watching um, people come into their their own and also watching the um, kind of the passing of the the passing of the sabers. Yes, <laughs> you see in THX. The kind of sterility that you see in 2001, lots of white, blank space. Yeah. Um, it's it's a it's jumpsuit life, you know. But even worse than that, it's barefoot. You're not even you don't even have shoes. Can you imagine? But other than that, it, it is you could definitely cut scenes of THX together with exterior shots of spaceships from 2001 and trick somebody into thinking that there's a space that those are space inside a spaceship but uh when you when you get to when you get to star wars writing star wars was a process that that had been germinating since youth and then through college and american graffiti it was finally time to make this thing happen it was Flash Gordon. He wanted to do Flash Gordon. He tried to get the rights to Flash Gordon. Thank God they turned him down. Yes. You know, I remember coming, having lunch with George at the Palm Restaurant in New York, and he was very depressed because he had just come back, and they wouldn't sell him Flash Gordon. That's right. Yeah, I remember and he that. he says, well, I'll just invent my own. What a, what a limitation had you gotten Flash Gordon, I wonder. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't give it. Give it to me, because... You finished the script, and I remember you gave it to me. Yeah. I thought it was terrific. And then you totally changed it. And I kept saying, well, why are you changing it? If you want Flash Gordon, you know, we, Brian Blessed can take <laughs> care of it. Um, Gordon's alive! Be gone with him! And he was shopping around to his friends, right? You got uh, Gloria Katz and Willard Hike. You got, um, of course, Coppola. Um, Matthew Robbins, Had he's Walter Murch, already uh, kind of started and founded his Rebel uh, yeah, production company. Yeah, he had, he had already sunk with uh, THX 1138 and forced them into bankruptcy and forced Coppola into directing The Godfather. Boo hoo! I Bless know. Right? Heart. American Graffiti was really done as a bet with Je- with uh, Francis, uh, who we had because of THX. Uh, American Zotrop went bankrupt, uh, and uh, we were all forced to go out and get real jobs. And um, well, Francis was anyway, because I couldn't get a real job. Um, and uh, so he went off to do The Godfather. Thank God, THX was a flop, I guess, too, because who knows? We wouldn't have had a lot of these other things. And and that period was was yes, yeah, open season. It's blue sky. But what what you gonna do? Like you shopping around to the friends, the friends mm-hmm. like, I don't know what the hell you're doing. This is like comic book stuff. What what's your theme? What's your point? Somewhere in that Brian J. Jones book, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure there's a point where you see this becomes oh yeah, Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. Hero's Journey. And he actually applies the story to that and we actually get the juice and the meat. <clears throat> this is where we get the uh initial story of Star Killer. Yeah. Right? And uh, some of the early Macquarie absolutely. Uh, art that we get for that is inspiring. <laughs> like, it is absolutely wild. Yeah, the, this is high fantasy uh, sci-fi at this point. This is not quite culminated into the you know used world, lived-in 
you know, relatable, put together universe that we're used to. Yeah, definitely not. We're, we will see that because of the people that ended up working on it. But at this point, if you end up in 2001 through Bowman's eyes as your, your point of view character, yeah. he and Luke Skywalker do share one pretty important thing and that is optimism or perseverance i don't know mm-hmm. is it one or the other is it both or is it just the will to live Luke well, doesn't um, become so a hero he's forced into he's it. forced into it but even though bowman had already uh, established himself as a competent everything pilot mm-hmm. you know um, yeah much more experienced going into um, this but they both are forced into a desperate situation and they both transformed mm-hmm. and improved and to a certain degree of evolve yeah. um, from this situation so that's a big anchor point because you you go from i mean it happens early on in in the original star wars film where obviously the lars homestead is attacked by the uh, uh stormtroopers searching for the death star plans and the droids well i mean Three quarters of the way in 2001, Bowman's confronted. His family's being attacked. Um, his home is being, you know, put into a situation where he's not really able to to live there. And uh, but he is forced to take action, and he does. And they both have to rely on instinct at the end of the day. Everything else, throw it all away. Yeah. All you have left is your training and your Bowman's natural heart. instinct, and you know your link powerful link to the force Mm -hmm. so and that also is a connection to keep moving forward bowman could have you know just sat there in the pod and decided not to go anywhere and just starve what are you you gonna do so they both end up taking the first step into a larger world not knowing where they're going to end up and they both end up somewhere they could never possibly have imagined their wildest dreams and maybe can't even understand at the time can't comprehend at the time in the case of bowman would you also say that maybe there's a plato's cave effect going on because luke you know there's no going back from becoming a jedi even if he were to have renounced the jedi order he's not going to go back to that same state once you were enlightened and worldly to a certain point you can't go back into the innocence you once had Dave has been transformed into an entire other living Living being being, by the end of the film. There's no going back from that either. Nope. In Star Wars Insider, issue 93 from May of 2007, Dan Wallace interviews Robert Watts, the production supervisor of Star Wars and Indiana Jones, and who was also an associate producer on 2001. He has some incredible stories about working on 2001. Whoa. Which... Um, was he on the uh, UK team shooting the... Uh, he was on the UK team. Okay. Get this. He was on Thunderball. Oh, cool. And he came off Thunderball and and got a call from Victor Linden. No. The one and only Victor Linden, who's the guy that came into the studio and said, why doesn't Hal just read your lips? And that great Victor Linden, who we once made fun of by saying he had a dog's body job by filing insurance forms on uh, bad footage. But honestly, he was a really awesome associate producer who got to do all kinds of cool stuff. 
and was right there in Stanley's apartment because they had to get uh, Robert Watts to New York. Wow. Because um, Stanley hadn't moved to the UK until after 2001. So before production started, he went to meet with him after Thunderball and uh, then got started on 2001 working in the centrifuge stuff. Wow. That's incredible because I could see some of the, uh, like Thunderball actually has a lot of moving parts mm-hmm. in it as a film, uh, mechanical parts as yeah. far as, you know. So, yeah, shoot, shooting. And the great design of uh, Sir Ken Adam, who went designed Doctor Strange Love and Barry Lyndon and Dang. other Kubrick stuff. You can actually, I recommend, there's a great podcast called the Kubrick Series, and they have an interview with Robert Watts. So check that out for sure. He's a riot. He's a hilarious guy if you ever. Uh, also, uh, our friend Jamie Benning in the UK has uh, interviewed him. And there's a great video interview of him as well on his filmumentaries. filmumentaries. Check him out. Highly recommend. This is from Insider number 93. He says to Dan Wallace, Lucas asked early crew members to watch four films to prepare for working on his. Wow. Two of the films seemed obvious and the others more cryptic. Well, Once Upon a Time in the West. Mommy! Sergio Leone. Silent Running. Really? Mm-hmm. Nice. So, Douglas Trumbull. Meet the almost human drones. Amazing companions on a journey beyond the stars. <laughs> the man has a full house and he knew it. Now, how about that? Hear Joan Baez sing Rejoice in the Sun and Silent Running. In 2001. Excellent. And finally to round them out, Satyricon. What? So you got to put a Fellini flick in there. Oh my God. (laughs) Out of left field. Everybody up. Quite a bit. Wow. <laughs> Silo running. That's something that we should. Yeah, there's some definite explore influences. into. Because that was Trumbull's answer to 2001. I was about to say, because it, it doesn't have the inspiration of design that 2001 does, but the story is fantastic. Mm. And of course, the effects are. Impeccable. Oh, yeah, they're great. They're great. But but you're right. The, the actual design, it. It is I guess more like of the, its time the, than timeless. The, uh, the deployment of those designs. Because yeah. 2001 feels like the iPhone of you yeah. know, sci-fi cinema. <laughs> like, you can't go anywhere. No, it's just like user-friendly. You can get right in. Everything is seamless. It, it, but 
you know, there was a lot of design that went into to make those seams go away and those uh, uh, all those little um, bezels uh, yeah. become <laughs> non-existent. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> Industrial design, truly a fluke. I segued from school to going to work at Trumbull Film Effects. I started on Silent Running. I drew designs for the ships, then built the models for the ships, and then photographed the models for the ships. It was an intense, immersive education. Coming to work was fun. Then I was approached by Gary Kurtz, who was a producer for George Lucas, and he wanted to talk about the visual effects for a movie. I was given the script, and I go, how bad can this be? It's a dogfight in space, right? I mean, silent running is, all right, this is not an insult to anyone who loves Logan's Run. Logan's Run is a very interesting oh, movie. Oh, well, Logan's Run. <laughs> but Logan's Run, in terms of the design, is very 70s and the execution of those effects. The little shuttle buses and yes. stuff that they're flying around yes. in, they're great. And they're, they're painted so awesome. in that like burnt orange yes. <laughs> <pin> stripe. <laughs> it's a fantastic aesthetic. I it love is, it. it. It dates but it itself. Does date, yeah. Dates itself. I mean, if you, if you pick out any of the design elements that are going to date 2001, I mean, it's really just some of the computers. Uh, that's really, I mean, they have tablets. They have like video calls yeah. i mean this is this is not uh yeah you're talking about the vector displays and stuff it on could the computers have, yeah yeah because otherwise they're yeah it, you wouldn't even notice mm-hmm. uh, this could be modern futurism wait is could that even be a good way to describe it but like alvin toffler probably would <laughs> but but it's something that even today we would still see and read as Futuristic, mm-hmm. you would, and it's yeah. That's an interesting balance to get because it's internal futurism. The fact that we haven't hit two thousand and one is like some people like to think of that like, as a sarcastic point, but they're kind of missing the point because it would have been a failure. Kubrick would have felt that it would have been a failure if two thousand and one had surpassed two thousand and one. If yeah. we if we were <laughs> right. looking back on the film as dated, then that was you know he was. Not intentionally trying to give us a, an extent of, okay, at 2002, the world will start to shift beyond what I'm projecting right mm-hmm. here, according to you know these tea leaves. Like no. if uh, chat GPT-4 were out <laughs> in 1970. Yes. <laughs> two things I would say aesthetically from Silent Running that are undoubtedly in Star Wars are the designs of the ships and the, the execution of that. He tried to get Douglas Trumbull uh, after his incredible success in 2001. He wasn't available. He ended up actually working on Close Encounters at the same time for Spielberg. So shucks, once again, George Lucas is going to have to do something else. So gee, we're going to have to found Industrial Light and Magic instead. Darn. <laughs> Not that it wasn't difficult and gave him a heart attack and almost died, because he did, but it all turned out well from, you know... From a certain point of view. A certain point of view? The proprietization of ILM, mm-hmm. you know, where they were able to do all this stuff in-house, it freed them up so much to a point where, you know, creativity was really the only boundary. Yeah. 
and that that's so rare for films that are being monitored by uh you know primary production companies that are looking at budget and time and it's not really an artistic thing for them. It is purely a, a budgetal thing. And that's why some of those companies are still around today. I mean, quite honestly, we may be getting lackluster film out of uh, some of these companies. But uh, what ILM did was really, it, it like you said earlier, Blue Sky. You know, <laughs> there were no longer, within reason, design boundaries. So they, they were able to bring in a team of individuals that had a lot of creativity, didn't have that kind of let's make this efficiently and cheap as possible, but they um, you know, really let them try out multiple designs, multiple applications, and uh, the, that's why the film holds up so well today, I think, is yeah. when you're able to put that much time into development, into the actual costumes, the Thinking creatures, the ships. I mean, that's another thing that 2001 and, and Star Wars 1977 have very much in common. The, the amount of design that went into them, the time was well invested. In, the yeah. logic of those design to, to an instant recognition, like you can see the thought process of how everything works. Yeah. It, it doesn't really rely on a lot of previous sci-fi where you just have to suspend so much disbelief at that point to make those super shiny weird tubular ships yeah. able to go now when, yeah. you, when you look at the discovery mm -hmm. you see all these different engines and parts to the ship that are recognizable like in maybe like large heavy ships yeah like, um, naval vessels and mm -hmm. you see some design elements from like submarines yeah and all kinds of real craft mm -hmm. and it, it it kind of explains visually how these are able to travel through space or operate in a futuristic fashion as far as like pressure sealed doors and bulkheads mm -hmm. and all that stuff. That's all submarine technology yeah. you know, that we've had um, for 50 years at that point, which is very interesting. 50 years, 30 years. <laughs> Age that back a little bit, but yeah, yeah. You're thinking, okay, so he's showing this to his crew, not being able to get Douglas Trumbull Here's what we want it to look like with these two films that Douglas Trimble has done. But that's not 100% true because he does have sitting in the back Colin Cantwell, our great effects maestro, who was in charge of, among other things, making ships and also the Jupiter monolith sequence. He was the one responsible for the cardboard cutout monolith. Ah. Uh and uh the giant cigarette pack and and, and <laughs> he designed starships for star wars oh, and built ships for star wars in colin cantwell's original concept model the of course it has the long nose just like the real x-wing had but uh, we were also amused that the the body of that is actually a dragster body it's, that's what makes that long long nose you know yeah we changed quite a bit from the concepts for the x-wing and one of the reasons was to make it look stronger, but also it had to contain motors for the ship to go into an X. The Y-Wing was featured in some of uh, Ralph McQuarrie's early concept illustrations. Kind of harkens back to the, uh, the P-38, you know, the two-fuselage fighter plane of World War II. Colin Cantwell did um, the concepts to get the idea across of the, the basic look of, and feel of all the different fighters and ships. 
I think the Y-Wing particularly is uh, you know, an interesting uh, idea, an interesting ship. It reminded me a little bit of a 57 Thunderbird. It had kind of a sleekness to it. As we worked on it and added details to it, it, it took on more of a kind of a cobbled together hot rod look. At the same time that I started doing the storyboards, we knew that we had to change the design on Colin Cantwell's ships. He had designed a Y-Wing and the X-Wing and the TIE Fighters, but they needed to fall into these worlds of the Empire stuff looks like this and the Rebel stuff looks like this. George always saw the Rebel fleet as essentially hot rods. These guys had acquired this stuff, used, and it was beat up and they patched it together and supercharged the engines and they were basically the hot rods. George wanted a used universe. You know, he didn't want that shiny Flash Gordon look. You weren't supposed to think of it like a, an incredibly massive piece of aluminum that was somehow floated in and put together. This had to be put together and riveted. Everything had to have a reason, so even if you looked up at close, if there was a box, it had to have tubes that went to a plenum box that then went to something else and had electrical wires that then connected it to something else. It had to have some kind of mechanical connection. And you can see in the same kind of design work there, kit bashing. For some of the minute detail, they were just finding parts from model kits that looked like this is a mechanical thing, this looked good. We called this kit bashing. And we would buy German tanks, airplanes, guns, the World War II equipment just to provide an incredible amount of good parts. We were limited somewhat by the model kits that we could get because if we had to build 10 X-Wings, we had to find 10 of those kits. So we'd buy these kits by the pound. We certainly did, on the TIE Fighter, we did uh, kit bashing, but there's so many shapes. The multi-spoke thing on the wheel, the, the ball that isn't totally a ball that goes off into a more of a hexagonal side pieces, all of those had to be carved individually. They weren't kit bashed. The kit bashing part of it is the little tiny little details. And you know, we knew that since you had a key light all of the sun, it would create all these little hard shapes, hard little lines and everything on the shadows. When you look at the discovery, you know, when you look at the Millennium Falcon, you, you see parts on there that you recognize, like radar dishes, specifically. Um, you know, Discovery could have been a Corellian mm -hmm. operation. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the AE-35 unit and the radar dish on the Falcon, um, and then you've got parts that are obviously exhaust and probably to someone that's a little more familiar with naval warships. The model work in, in 2001, the, the spaceships were, were light years ahead of what anybody had done you know, previously. Spacecraft in science fiction films prior to 2001 were generally smooth and shiny and very sleek looking. You either had your flying saucers, which were pretty much based on, I think, something that somebody saw in 1947 in the desert and said it was a saucer. The ships in 2001 resembled more of what you would see at NASA at the time. They were designed by engineers, not by people in a Hollywood prop shop. This was unprecedented. You always brought in some hack Hollywood art director. They need to shoot it tomorrow and we'll glue this stuff on and, you know, sparks will come out of it. 
That was a new vision for spacecraft, and of course that vision affected Star Wars. Star Wars, uh, all the spaceships again are built out of bits of, uh, of airfix kits. And they would uh, construct a, a spaceship like the um, Millennium Falcon. And got model kits and just put little wibbly things on, it didn't matter what it was. They would just grab wheels and treads and pipes and stick them all over it. They take that leftover part, cut it up, stick it on there, and your mind will say, hey, that's something that uh, I don't understand what it is, but it must be functional. Now, Brian Johnson, who didn't work on Star Wars, but did work on Empire until he left to go work on Alien, <laughs> busy man, uh, was in charge of building those spaceships for 2001. And with our buddy Robert Watts, they were the ones who went to Germany together to the Toy International Toy Fair and made the deal to go into the manufacturer's factories and piecemeal just <laughs> grab all sorts of unique parts you know bits of probably plastic runoff yeah you know, all kinds of interesting bits and bobs and, and that's what gives these these characteristic feelings of uh, you know being made out of of real you know recognizable parts and uh, the tradition of kit bashing uh, has really even continued through this day where people are using it for scale models they're using it for um use for exterior shots and things like that like it is it's still an applicable method of of building today we embellished all the models with little tiny bits of plastic molding because of the detail it's the detail in the molding that made the models apart from the shapes made the models look realistic and Star Wars, boy, they wish they had that luxury. Collectors are glad they didn't because they didn't get to go to a toy fair or a factory and pick out things. They had to go down to the model shop and just buy bulk World War II and car model kits and just take them back and spread them out on the table. Yeah. And thankfully, now collectors can recreate those models because they can find those original model kits. Poetic, rather, that Kubrick's models had to be proprietarily crafted from the factories yeah. where the, yeah. the layman can't get all of them. <laughs> you were there for three years. I was on it three and a quarter years, yeah, which is a long, long time on a movie. Um, I was given the responsibility of looking after all the models, setting them up for photography with Stanley Kubrick, and it, we used to shoot one of the models, Discovery models, about 52 feet long, and we were shooting in what's called Ultra Panavision, which was 65mm film stock, not 35, but 65, with anamorphic lenses, which made it even wider, like um, um, one of the other things, I can't remember the name of them now. Anyway, so it was really widescreen, but we were shooting, we had to shoot using original film, using spherical lenses, so that we made sure that everything was just so. And the models we shot on a stage with just black velvet and a still camera, a big Linhoff still camera with an 8x10 and a 6x4, I think, back. And we had Polaroid Land 3000 stock, which was really ultra fine grain black and white stock used by the CIA for satellite, not satellite, but high aircraft altitude photography and similar stock but they didn't have to do what we did which was every time we took a shot take it out of the back of the camera peel off the the backing and then dunk the negative in a cleaning solution and then dry it so that we could then use those those negatives to enlarge sections of the craft whichever section of the craft Stanley wanted to be shot on 
and then that was re-photographed with those photographs stuck on sheets of glass. So it was flat because the depth of field using those cameras was so small that you couldn't shoot the 52 feet model ever and keep it all in focus. Well, I was going to say that the, the scale, the scale of the models on 2001 was just immense. I mean, even the, even the, the small discovery was 15 feet long, yeah. but, but I think it's actually 54 feet long. 54 the, with a six foot uh, sphere at the front. Yeah, yeah. Now, the, in in your opinion, obviously, with with your experience of, of special effects in film since then, was that was that really necessary? I mean, I know the results speak for themselves in the film, but yes, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. They call them Pikachu's these days, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Stay put, I'll have a look around. R2? R2! Where are you? R2! You be more careful. R2, that way. On Empire Strikes Back, when R2-D2 gets spat out of the swamp, they tried, my boys tried to do it in England when I was actually out in the States. You can't fire an R2-D2 out of water. It just doesn't work. You have, you'd have to fire it with such force that the thing would either collapse or it just wouldn't work. So out in, uh, at ILM, I got a tabletop made with an oval hole in it, which was exactly the same diameter as the R2-D2 coming out at an angle. And then I, one of the R2-D2s that I'd had made, which was a really lightweight one, had a tube inside with about a five inch diameter tube, which we fitted onto a ram which was also just under five inches, so that this thing would slide off very easily. And then I used compressed air to fire this thing through up this through this oval hole. But the oval hole had a stretched silicon rubber sheet over the top, and then the whole thing was covered in liquid nitrogen. So that as it fired through, and it and I had little razor blades on the R2D2 to cut through the silicon rubber as it fired through. It would cut the rubber and the smoke would swirl like water and there was a tiny bit of water on there as well. And when I was due to do this shot, I was on the stage at ILM and George Lucas brought in the head of 20th Century Fox, the head of Warner Brothers, Steven Spielberg, Francis Coppola and somebody else to watch this thing happening. And I had no idea about this. And we had about five skins that we could put back over the top if the first take didn't work. What I didn't know was the boy that was making the skins had run out of the correct rubber and there was one silicon rubber one and the others were a mixture. 
which was much more pliable and a bit like a condom rather than being a rubber that would just part. And put the first one on, got all the stuff going, everything. We had three cameras running at high speed. And the, there was a net in the corner of the stage. And when I got in in the morning, the boys had drawn a huge bullseye in it. <laughs> they'd, put, they'd put numbers on it with, with 10 in the middle, five in the next one, three. <laughs> and they were all having bets on which, which bit it would hit. And there I was with this button in my hand, standing behind my back, with all these people from Hollywood standing there watching this thing. Okay, roll the camera, here we go, press the button. Out it came, and it hit exactly where I'd said it was gonna hit on the side, which was just a complete guess. And they all turned around and said, oh, that looks okay, Brian, well done, yeah, and off they went. What they didn't know was every other take we tried to do failed miserably because it was the wrong rubber in there if I'd picked any of the other skins. So somewhere up there was looking after me on that day because <laughs> I don't think I'd have finished the picture otherwise. Colin Cantwell, we have Robert Watts, and then later we have Brian Johnson on Empire Strikes Back. We also have someone uh, might be interested in, a gentleman named Stuart Freeborn. Oh, boy. Stuart Freeborn, of course, made our classic ape creatures and was responsible for the designs that may or may not have been so realistic that members of the Academy thought they were real apes and voted for Planet of the Apes instead. Mm -hmm. The other thing that he pioneered with those ape suits the use of the hair and the use of the jaw for biting that luscious raw meat, right? You got, a, you got an actuator in the jaw. So yeah, you can actually, very early costumed animatronics. Yeah, you've actually got a point of articulation for the actor yeah. to use. It's not just a rubber mask. I mean, right. It's articulated in a way that portrays like a natural being. And uh, with those apes, again, I mean, yeah, like you said, they were so convincing that <laughs> a lot of people thought they, they were actual monkeys. <laughs> that jaw came in handy as he designed Chewbacca's head, because that's the exact same jaw design no that he used for Chewie. Wow. It's from those apes. Yeah. And of course, threading that beautiful, luscious yak hair, you get that great chewy fur. Yep. I bet that would have been a pain to uh, keep not free. Don't you know? <laughs> well, there's quite a lot of work in 2001, it was, yes. Phony monkey. Mechanics. Yeah. Well, mechanics for the mouse movements and all that was, yes, it was a bit complicated, and I know I did have a few problems with it, in getting it right, but I did make it work when the mouth opened. And then their lips have got to stretch. There's a, and it's the consistency exactly has got to be just right and the foam itself is soft enough to move but firm enough to maintain the shape in parts. It was from Madame Tussauds that I escaped to join 
Stanley Kubrick on the film 2001. I was to assist Stuart Freeborn in the making of the ape sequence. I see my time with Stuart as a postgraduate course from a master of his craft, researching ways of working with new materials that had come standard in this day and age. It was an exciting time, not only as a sculptor, but supporting a director in a film that's become a classic. Stuart was normally very secretive about, it, about his work. It was he who he used to practice his own makeups on his own face. When we started on the masks of 2001, there was uh, not much information. Well, nearly 50 years ago, anthropologists had done some work, but uh, there was still no universally accepted image of early man. All we could do was look at things of Ray Harryhausen's, his King Kong, or go to the zoo and stare through the bars. We still had to give the camera something, something believable. If you look on the original, the only reason that Chewie's mouth was never shut, because in the lips there were reverse, reverse magnets, so his mouth never actually closes because you can't, you, you know, which compensates, which compensates the jaw as it opens and closes. I think it was Stuart Freeborn's wife knitted Chewbacca's suit. It was a wool knitted suit to which they applied all the hair and things afterwards. And we thought, well, you know, you wouldn't do that today. Why would you bother doing that? There are many more materials and better fabrics that we can use. The truth of the matter is, is the way a woolen suit moves is absolutely incredible. The way it flexes, the way that it has that weight. So it was not done because they didn't have the right, you know, the sort of materials or better materials. It was done because that was the way to do it. Oh, yeah. And, and of course, then we'll go on to make everyone's favorite pedagogue, the legendary Jedi Master himself, Yoda. Joel showed me a few original sketches, and uh, I thought, well, that's interesting, but uh, I want something in more depth, you see. And so I looked in the mirror, and I thought, well, uh, something perhaps a little bit amusing about my face, so I modeled something of myself. Now I've got to make him look intelligent. I got this photograph of Einstein and put the Einstein wrinkles in all around. I did a lot of thinking about it because he's got to be full of subtle action and movements, especially in the face and the body. And I put it all in, what was necessary, and then finally it all worked. I mean, incredible direct from the source harvesting of the crew that George Lucas and, and Gary Kurtz could as we began Star Wars. The final two people that we must mention is Gil Taylor, who would go on to uh, contradict George Lucas every day during the shooting of Star Wars and drive him further towards his heart attack, heart attack, heart attack yeah. and later <laughs> diabetes. He was also a legendary cinematographer. <laughs> he was also a legendary cinematographer who filmed Doctor Strangelove. Ten females to each male. Fluids. And then we, we have one more person that we have to discuss, and her name is Liz Moore. Liz Moore was a sculptor who created C-3PO designs, but specifically the ones that fit Anthony Daniels. So Liz Moore was like his guardian angel who came... <laughs> 
and actually made this less of a torture chamber for him. She also designed the final Stormtrooper helmet approved by George himself. Wow. Again, making these Macquarie designs realistic and usable. Yeah, because his designs had a high concept feel. The materials were still kind of ambiguous. Mm -hmm. The, The hard angles and seams were non-existent or not articulated in a way where you could imagine it being put on a physical human body. Yeah. But before that, she worked on 2001 and A Clockwork Orange. Wow. Did she work on the suits for those? For 2001, Michael Benson says, our favorite catchphrase, on page 381 of Space Odyssey, if you don't have it by now, we're in an embryonic stage with the finale of the movie, pun intended. (laughs) I was going to ask. Yeah, so this is a middle of, of... ping pong match of of memos about the fetuses and the different human embryo models being created kubrick had decided to produce the apparitional star child of the film's final sequence in borum wood and he recruited a talented young sculptor liz moore for the task moore who'd helped stuart freeborn with his man ape costumes had already made something of a name for herself as a student by sculpting clay busts of the beatles that summer, she produced a clay rendition of a human embryo with features eerily similar to Cure Delay. Whoa. As what? per Kubrick's requirements, it had an abnormally large head meant to signify humanity's next evolutionary stage. Originally, it was going to be much more complex mechanically with arms and fingers that moved, remembered, Brian Johnson. But then Stanley had the idea of surrounding it in a cocoon of light. And then the end decided that all he really wanted to happen was for its eyes to move. So then Brian Johnson set to work on inserting glass eyes and making the sculpture glow. So they did it with some gauze. They they tried to use a Gaussian blur when Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Unsworth filmed it. And it, it was diffused, sort of, but they ended up reshooting Liz Moore's sculpture with about 15 layers of gauze. Douglas Trumbull says, with about 40,000 watts of backlight, something like four big arc lights. Wow, that's bright. Overexposed glowing effect. And then he says, I airbrushed the envelope that surrounded it on glossy black paper. Liz Moore's work on 2001, both on the ape costumes and the Star Child, are two of the most iconic yeah. bits of work. Ever and and on, in Star Wars... What are what are the two things and across any of the movies or now TV shows and comics and everything that we have now? If you see C-3PO's head or a Stormtrooper's head, I mean, that's more Star Wars than anything right. other than maybe Darth, Darth Vader's, Vader's helmet. helmet. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> Sadly, um, she never got to see that work in New Hope because... Um, no way. She died in a car accident. Oh, um, how sad. Just right before filming began. And... Anthony Daniels was devastated. He he mentions it in his book. Um, Don't give him that plug. <laughs> <laughs> we also take cash. <laughs> we love you. We're just kidding. <laughs> oh my head! Oh my goodness! Oh, 
This is Wes, and I'm Brad, signing off. Bye-bye. Oh, sorry. Goodbye.